Hi, everyone. Just a brief content warning as we are discussing perks of being a wallflower this week. This episode includes some very light but still present discussions of trauma, sexual abuse, and the like. So just take care of yourself and know what's coming. It's really nothing too graphic at all, but just know it's there. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Sleepover Cinema, where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of those whose high school friend groups were made up of hot, self-declared outcasts. I'm Hannah Leach. And I'm Audrey Leach. We are the sister filmmaking duo, also known as Two Pink Productions, and we haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them. <laughs> get a little tongue-tied. <laughs> we're Not going really. to explore... <laughs> We're going to explore the good, the bad, and the nonsensical of the movies that first inspired our love for film in an attempt to answer the question, are these movies actually good? And at the end of the day, do we really care if they are? Today, we are talking about 2012's The Perks of Being a Wallflower. Dear friend, I haven't really talked to anyone outside of my family all summer, but tomorrow is my first day. And I really want to turn things around this year. Come on, let's go be psychos together. So what are you going to do when you get out of this place? I really want to be a writer, but I don't know what I'd write about. You could write about us. Call it Slut and the Falcon. Make us solve crimes. Why do I and everyone I love pick people who treat us like we're nothing? We accept the love we think we deserve. You see things and you understand. You're a wallflower. I didn't think anyone noticed me. I know there are people who say all these things don't happen. I know these will all be stories someday. But right now, we are alive. And in this moment, I swear we are infinite. Okay, if you're a YouTube watcher of the show, you may be noticing a slight difference. Audrey's laughing at me. Uh, you might be noticing a slight difference in our video, and that's because we're not doing video because I have COVID. Hey. And it's just not happening. <laughs> It's just not happening today. Not only does Hannah have Rona, but also Josh has it. <laughs> yes. Uh, I am a lot better at this point. Josh is not. But neither of us had it super, super, super bad. This is the fifth day I've been home doing absolutely nothing. Well, not nothing, but, you know, not leaving. We watched five episodes of Severance in a row, which is weird for us because we never watched that much TV. Also, I finally have started watching Glee from the beginning, which feels yeah. very relevant to the audience here. I do feel like you should be charged a late fee. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Probably. Um, um, but the fact is, we've talked about it before. We were living that life. Like it. I know. You know, so for us being theater slash show choir people in Ohio, it wasn't as popular for us. <laughs> it was very popular for us, but we just didn't watch it. Yeah. I mean, if you're living, you don't have to watch it if you're already living it. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. But, but you know, people we were friends with really were watching it. I remember our choir teacher even watched it. Yeah. Which, speaking of which, I know it changes as the, as the show goes on. But, like, why is Matthew Morrison the main character in the first season? I think it was just, like, a method to get into the show. Like, I don't think that the intention was ever that he was going to remain the main character. But yeah, yeah, I remember thinking that was odd too. He has the the most relevant arc that he has or like the biggest arc that he has is in the first season and everything after that is like, Okay. (laughs) Like, he's unacceptable. Like, everything about his performance is unacceptable. I just watched the episode where he sings the ballad to Rachel because they get paired up or whatever, which the fact that they even got paired up made no sense in the first place. And the interesting thing with Ryan Murphy shows, too, and always has been in all of his shows, is that he does participate in some really excellent casting a lot of the time, if not all the time, and actually does break down barriers and actually does push the envelope in terms of casting and representation. But the humor and the, um, (laughs) yeah, this is like the humor and the dialogue, it always ages pretty poorly, like overall. Yeah. I'll let you guys know how the progress is going as I go. Now, I will Um, only be impressed if you actually (laughs) make it to the end because it gets brutal. Most people haven't seen four, five, or six. It's because the kids' time gets split up. Um, They they didn't want to get rid of their original characters, but they graduate, so they split time between New York and Ohio, and then you get new high schoolers, and you just don't care about them as much as you did. Right. You got to get to the point where fictional Rachel Berry is playing Fanny in the fictional Broadway funny girl show. (laughs) Oh, is that what happened? Yeah, like Rachel Berry gets the role. Oh, that explains a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now that it's happening in real life. The bitch has talent. Yeah, I mean. No matter what anyone says. I'm sorry, like I... I am a Spring Awakening stan, and you know how recently (laughs) there was that documentary released about Spring Awakening, and it was like the cast coming together and performing the show? I was at that show. (laughs) You were? Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah, we got tickets. They were expensive because it was all the money was going towards the Broadway equity fund thing. And then they messed up the, um, like the machine that, that scanned the tickets, like broke down before the show. And so we stood out there in the cold in like February for like two hours. And we were like, what's like, what are they going to do? 
So they didn't even have us go to our seats. It was a free for all. They literally were like, go, go, go. Because the, what? The, the whole thing was being taped for HBO. We didn't even get to sit in our seats. <laughs> so we ended up sitting like further back than we were supposed to, which sucked. And then after the next day, they sent an email like, if you want your money back, you can, even though it was a fundraiser. And so Hunter and I got to go for free at the end of it. <laughs> wow. How much did you pay? I think they were like almost 200 per person. Yeah. Yeah. That's not as bad as they could have been, honestly. Yeah, but we were in like the bag. Like as you got closer, it got to up to like 5,000, you know, like something crazy. Right. That yeah. makes sense. Because it was a full reunion too, right? Yeah. It was lit. It was honestly amazing. <laughs> Side note. It's funny. Okay, nobody could really know this, but in the Thumbelina episode, I had COVID. And now in this episode, (laughs) you do. And I remember when we were recording that one, I also coughed and almost lost my life. We've gotten to the point where we are going to do another song versus song (laughs) hot take of the week because they are way more entertaining to me than like like any other. I don't know why, but they are. Yes. We got I'll Be. Versus Iris by the Goo Goo Dolls. I would pick Iris for sure because I'll be is too like, it's too like almost like country adjacent. Like it's too. Is it like too Nickelbacky? Even yeah. though they aren't, they aren't country, but you know. I'll be. <laughs> I don't even know the words. The awkward thing about Iris though is that. It's a great slow dance song, but then two thirds of the way through, it has this weird instrumental break that's like impossible to dance through. Yeah. What does Iris sound like again? Iris is, and I don't want the world to see me. It's it's over. I love that one. So let's get into this actual movie. We're talking about The Perks of Being a Wallflower today. It was released on September 21st, 2012. For anyone who wants to know, that was the beginning of my senior year of high school, which makes it extra potent. Um, It is rated PG-13, and it was written and directed by Stephen Chbosky, who was the, or who is, the author of the novel of the same name. It's an adaptation of the novel. Stephen Chbosky also, in like the film world, wrote, Jericho randomly wrote the screenplay for the Beauty and the Beast live action. So we've got an Emma Watson apologist. (laughs) Yes, that's what I was thinking. I was like, it's, I guess it's because of Emma Watson. I don't really know. But there's also an upcoming Prince Charming Disney live action question mark. And he's writing the screenplay for that. And he also wrote the screenplay for Wonder. But he's definitely best known (laughs) for Perks of Being a Wallflower. Okay, so, and just for those who haven't read Perks of Being a Wallflower, which I feel like a lot of you guys probably have because it's just one of those books, but 
It has sold 1.5 million copies since it was published in 1999. It was 1.5 million copies as of 2016. So that's even after the movie came out. It was a number one New York Times bestseller for more than a year. It won the American Library Association Best Book for Young Adults in 2000. Best Book for Reluctant Readers in 2000 as well. It was really important in terms of like, I don't know, like LGBT representation in books for us when we were younger. And it dealt with heavy topics. And it's like very much like a banned book. It's like one of those sorts of books. It's the type of book that makes you feel cool when you're that, when you're young, like when you're reading it, you're like, oh my God. You're like, this is literature. Like, Like, whoa. They're drinking. Yeah. They talk of, they say penis once probably in Mm -hmm. this whole book. And that's edgy. We have three different synopses, as is kind of usual at this point. All right. So the first one comes from Letterboxd, and it is Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, 1991. High school freshman Charlie is a wallflower, always watching life from the sidelines, until two senior students, Sam and her stepbrother Patrick, become his mentors, helping him discover the joys of friendship, music, and love. Dot, dot, dot. Like, okay, all right. Um, The second one is very short from IMDb. An introvert freshman is taken under the wings of two seniors who welcome him to the real world. To me, I was like, we're calling that the real world? I don't really know. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) real for him, I guess. Um, Yeah. And then Rotten Tomatoes. Socially awkward teen Charlie is a wallflower, always watching life from the sidelines until two charismatic students become his mentors. Free-spirited Sam and her stepbrother Patrick help Charlie discover the joys of friendship, first love, music, and more, while a teacher sparks Charlie's dreams of becoming a writer. However, as his new friends prepare to leave for college, Charlie's inner sadness threatens to shatter his newfound confidence. His inner sadness threatens to shatter his confidence. I think it's more just like, to me, when you just read that, it's like, what's the actual stakes? Like, what's the actual It's just not revealing that because if they did, it would be like spoiled. (laughs) The taglines, we have two... And they are exactly what you would think they would be. The first one is we accept the love we think we deserve. And the second one is we are infinite. So let's get into this cast. quite prophetic at this point. So prophetic. We have Logan Lerman as Charlie. Um, This is one of the roles he's best known for having played, but he also was Percy Jackson in the Percy Jackson franchise, which I didn't know. But he also was in Fury, Hunters, Indignation, and Jack and Bobby, amongst other things. Next up, we have Emma Watson as Sam. She just is Hermione, but she also has been Belle and Beauty and the Beast. She was in the Bling Ring, and she was Meg in Little Women, which Audrey and I both have discussed as pretty much the best role we've seen her in outside of Harry Potter. Next up, we have Ezra Miller as Patrick. They were going to be in The Flash 2022. Uh, They were in The Stand. They were in the Fantastic Beast series, which just is teeming with totally unproblematic stars. And of course, Ezra Miller has a really troubling and also bizarre timeline of like incidents surrounding them. Um, We won't really get into it here. Interesting person has done some questionable things. Is like missing. I don't know. Can't be found to be arrested. Okay. Weirdly, Mae Whitman like wasn't on the list of 
actors for this movie, but she is Mary Elizabeth. Um, she's in this one fine day. Hope floats the duff. Owl House, Robot Chicken, Young Justice, Good Girls, Family Guy, Parenthood. But we're gonna come back to this, but she she's the main person in the duff, which was like 2015 teen movie duff standing for designated ugly fat friend. Why was she cast in why does she get cast in these roles? Like, I don't get it. First of all, Duff is incredibly out of line. I saw it in theaters when it came out and I remember being like kind of into it, but it was also a long time ago. Next up, we have Paul Rudd as Mr. Anderson. It's Paul Rudd basically stunt casted. We don't need to explain who Paul Rudd is. Next up, we have Johnny Simmons as Brad. Um, He was young Neil in Scott Pilgrim. He was Chip in Jennifer's Body, which is really relevant to everyone listening. And then lastly, we have Nina Dobrev as Candace. She feels relevant to me, but I don't know why. What was she? Vampire Diaries. Liars? No. Oh, okay. (laughs) Not that far off. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. She was Elena in The Vampire Diaries. Did you watch The Vampire Diaries? No. But senior year of high school, my two close friends, Conche and Rachel, Conche has been on this podcast before. Oh, yeah. Um, They both watched it. And for some reason, I don't remember why, they decided that we, me, Rachel and Conche were the main three from that show. And like, we like, <laughs> so like, I think they, I think I was Bonnie Conche was okay. Caroline and Rachel was Elena. And I just, I got called Bonnie a lot. Senior oh, that's year. why you got called Bonnie. Yeah, like I was always called Bonnie and I didn't know anything about the show. And then I, when I found out who Bonnie was, I was like, oh, sweet. Cause she seems like the best character. Like she's the, everybody else is a vampire and she's a witch. Yeah, I noticed you being called Bonnie all the time. And I was like, those kids, I had no idea. What it <laughs> yeah, was. that's why. Okay, Audrey, what about what about these numbers? So estimated budget of 13 million. That is pretty modest, honestly. Um, opening weekend, they only made a measly $228,359. That's like beyond bad. That's very, very, very bad. Maybe it was super limited though. That's kind of what I'm getting. It was probably like- I think it was. Yeah, super limited and then expanded as it caught attention. Um, and then the worldwide gross is 33384127 So they did all right. It's fine. These critical and audience opinions, Audrey, take uh, us away. I'm going to read them because COVID has snatched Hannah's throat. <laughs> I'm struggling. Um, okay, so the critic score is an 85% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's really good, actually. That's really nice. A nice I know, score. I was surprised. The critic consensus is, The Perks of Being a Wallflower is a heartfelt and sincere adaptation that's bolstered by strong lead performances. The critical opinions. We have four. This first one comes from Jake Wilson of The Age. Even making allowances for a certain amount of Hollywood gloss, there's something wrong with a film about misfits where everyone is this good looking and poised. <laughs> they're not misfits. They're just not. No. no. Um, like when Emma's character is like, welcome to the island of misfit toys. <laughs> Literally, no. I was like, stop. 
Okay, second one is from Ian Buckwalter of The Atlantic. He says, Perk seems like the work of a much more experienced director, maintaining fidelity to the source material without sacrificing any cinematic qualities, triggering genuine sentimentality and nostalgia through interaction between sound and image. Ian was throwing down. Come on, Ian. (laughs) (laughs) Um... He's writing an essay today. The third one is an honest, affection-hooking, coming-of-age drama which proves that there is life beyond Hogwarts for Emma Watson. I mean, there is life, but she's close to death. (laughs) (laughs) She's still still going back to Hogwarts every weekend to attend the game. Yeah, like she's struggling. Um... And the last one is a perky comedy with a few high-flying perceptions, mostly licensed to Watson, who acts with the freedom of a Hogwarts escapee who has finally outrun the dogs. I know. That one was really dramatic, so I had to put it there. What the hell? Okay. (laughs) There's so Mm -hmm. many audience opinions here, but... Here we go. (laughs) Yeah. Well, because this movie's really polarizing, which we're going to talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, some people really hate it, and some people think, like, it's, like, really personal to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So, I tried to represent that. I see, I see. So, 89% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, four letters on, four stars on Letterboxd. Um, Wow. That's also mm-hmm. higher than I would anticipate. Okay, first audience opinion, 0.5 stars. Hated it. Is that supposed to be hated? It's English accent. Oh, English oh, okay. accent. Hated <laughs> <Aided> it. <laughs> Rubbish. Never watching again. Regretful viewing. Made me cringe. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. Five-star review. A film that never fails to make me cry. The music in the film is beautiful. The storyline of the film is heartbreaking wrecking. The script in the film is both tragic and magnificent. Definitely a must watch. Uh, mm-hmm. 4.5 stars. I love this movie, but the kiss the prettiest girl in the room scene gives me secondhand embarrassment every time. Yeah. I mean, it's supposed to. <laughs> um, yeah. A five star review. Charlie, Sam and Patrick. <laughs> I love you. But how the fuck did you not know a David Bowie song? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of that. Uh, But it's funny, too, because like I was in that boat. Like when I first saw the movie, I didn't know we can be heroes. Like I didn't know that song. Another 0.5 star review. There's a scene where he's like in a car or something and he says some deep line like I'm the king of the world, but it's not that. But it's not as good as Titanic. And it made Hayden and I laugh really hard when we heard it. Bad movie. (laughs) (laughs) who's Hayden? (laughs) I don't know. I have no idea, but Hayden's a character in that review. (laughs) Um, 0.5 stars, edgy Tumblr trash that cannot justify its existence. Now that's a question of chicken or the egg. Yeah, I agree. Um, And then on Letterboxd, a five-star review from Logan Kenny. (laughs) Ah, yes, this movie about privileged rich kids dealing with their meaningless, shallow problems like the lingering trauma of childhood sexual abuse, dealing with grief over your best friend's suicide, being openly gay and receiving brutal homophobia and dismissal from the man you love, being cheated on and abandoned in relationships, and dealing with depression and crippling social anxieties by making connections and bonding with people to find some form of solace and beauty in a world filled with such deep pain. This movie was the first time I ever 
never saw someone that felt like me and it's still one of the only ones. This movie has helped me through initial doubts over my diagnosis, over depressive periods throughout my entire life, through my intense self-hatred and physically violent lapses. It has existed with me and grown with me. And now as I approach the end of my adolescent self, I look back and imagine Charlie and dream for him a world where his traumas healed and everything became okay. Makes me believe that mine will too. People just, it means a lot to a lot of people and that is totally okay. Like, I'm glad that it is. But like, if you caught on to this one sentence, as I approach the end of my adolescent self, that's the most important part of the review. Yeah. Like, you're still that close to it that you feel that way. Um, All right. So tweets from recent-ish times. Um, First person says, why didn't no one question the fact that she was a senior dating a freshman in Perks of Being a Wallflower? Second one, yes, babe, you are so Mitski, perks of being a wallflower, pile of unread books, Pinterest outfits, Converse, high tops, Gilmore Girls, dyed hair, wolf cut, mommy issues, art and poetry, 2015, Tumblr core, can we kiss now? <laughs> that was long. Um, yeah. The third one is the amount of perks of being a wallflower edits to Lord on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Correct. Um, like yeah. ribs and whatnot. Um, yeah. And the last one is watching the perks of being a wallflower at three in the morning to forget that Ezra Miller is mentally deranged. As someone who was a senior in high school in September 2012, it is my honor to run us through this moment here. So 2012, could there be a better time to be on Tumblr? Personally, I don't think so. I think it really went through 2014. So you had Marina and the Diamonds, Electra Heart, deep vibe. Lana was coming onto the scene, deep vibe. Um, Gossip Girl ended in 2012. One Direction was huge. The Wanted was not as huge, but still pretty big. Twilight also ended in 2012. The Hunger Games just began, which makes sense. A was revealed on Pretty Little Liars. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Um, Selena, Demi, and Miley all left Disney Channel in the same year. Red by Taylor Swift came out. It was a deep Beyonce four era, deep Gaga before art pop. In 2012, I was uh, insane. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was a Weight Watchers bitch really intensely. I was applying to colleges. I was- You were on um, the war pursuing, path. I was on the war path, <laughs> but like in a good way. I don't know. Listen, I think we both had that sort of narrative arc and that was, that was good. That was good for us. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when did we first watch the movie? What do we remember about it? Maybe when did we read the book? If you read the book? Uh, I definitely read the book after you. And literally because you had it, not because I would have read it necessarily on my own. I think I remember reading it and feeling like I was reaching a little bit. Like it was like a little bit out of my range. I think people like... Two years. You were out of your depth. (laughs) Yeah. I think people like even like two years older than me at the time would get a lot more from it than I could just due to my, I'm sure lots of people my age at the time could have, but I just had like no experience of the sort. So I was just like, I don't really know what's going on. I didn't even know what Rocky Horror was. Like there are things in that book that are real things that I didn't know were real things. It could have been fictional. (laughs) Like they could have made it up. I'm like, yeah, what's this fictional movie that I don't know about? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And I think so for that reason, it didn't hit me that hard. But I was like, ooh, fun. Yeah, yeah. So as I described in the 500 Days of Summer episode, this, the the emo to hipster pipeline, um, this book was very in vogue with that group of people. So me and a select group of friends, especially me and my best friend in high school, we were very that. But I wrote down here, you see someone toting around that yellow green paperback around school and you know they're listening to Bonnie Vare on the school bus. Yeah. <laughs> because it's true. This book was just a really, really, really big deal to a lot of people in my little group. And the movie coming out was also a huge deal. Um, but I remember when the movie came out, it didn't really live up to um, my expectations, mostly because of Emma Watson, which just in the book, it... Like, I don't know. And I'll kind of say this in the second half, but I feel like in the movie, like they hinge so much of the specialness of the Sam character just in like our whole generation's collective love and nostalgia for Emma Watson more than her being like all that fleshed out. Yeah. Whereas in the book, she's a lot more fleshed out. And I didn't picture her being like Emma Watson literally at all. I remember I went and saw the movie in theaters with my high school best friend. And then this other girl I did theater with who didn't go to our school. And my friend cried in the theater like really intensely. My best friend cried in the theater really intensely. And my other friend like wasn't crying and I like wasn't crying. <laughs> and it was a vibe. And I'm pretty sure we went out to dinner beforehand. I actually don't know when I saw the movie the first time. I think roughly when it came out, but I don't remember if I saw it in theaters or like what. I don't know. Yeah. I saw it at Cedar Lee, which is the theater right down the street from me now. So it was kind of a big deal. Like we drove to Cleveland Heights to like see it at like the cool theater. Yeah. Like when I tell you that going from Solon to Cleveland Heights was like going to the big city or something like it was it like, really was it's so funny to think about now because our parents I know are there and you're there and it's just like yeah different but it's like it's like you drive to Cleveland Heights and you're like sure someone's gonna give you weed yeah like, year old like that's how it felt and like we have tales about that theater and like things oh yeah actually wait this would be a good time to bring up should we bring it up in the second yeah half? yeah we could tell the okay. story keep keep the cedar lee theater <laughs> in the front of your mind because it's very relevant to things that happen in the second uh, or in the movie this movie was on hulu yeah not to say anything about runtime, but let me just say it was a really good runtime. Um, and you should go give it a watch because we will have a lot to say. BRB. Christina Yerling Biro, host of the podcast Pop Culture Confidential. Join me as I go way behind the scenes with some of the most influential people in entertainment and media. Hear actors such as Succession's Brian Cox talk about his favorite characters to play. There always has to be a mystery. The audience have to be in a situation where they want to know what's going on. 
meet studio execs like Pixar chief Pete Docter, and learn his secret on how he makes us cry. Emotion is our first language. And so many others who are defining popular culture, from Obama speechwriter David Litt to Top Chef host Padma Lakshmi. We don't often think about food politically, or we don't want to, but it really is. Join me. Search for Pop Culture Confidential wherever you get your podcasts. We are back, and it is time to talk about 2012's The Perks of Being a Wallflower. I did my notes in the traditional style. I did them by hand, which I think will make our lives a little easier. Is this movie a high school romanticization movie, but for alternative people? So meaning like football movies or like whatever, like when they look back on like the golden years, is that this... Is this movie the equivalent of that, but for, like, alt people? For white people also. (laughs) I also have written that down a lot, too. This movie's a lot about emo white people, but... Yeah. um, Straight out... Okay, straight out the gate, just, like, the first half hour, 40 minutes of this movie, I was, like, so uncomfortable. Like, I was cringing so hard for a few reasons um mostly just because it falls into a lot of tropes of the era like why are the smiths carrying this movie on their back i don't understand and why Um, was that like a trend because it was i know i know i think it's probably because like late 80s writers were probably coming into their moment more like kids that or like writers that grew up then yeah um and they like loved the smiths and you know when sam's like it sounds so much better on vinyl like shit like that hate um i also hate it when movies list what music is good like when they like name drop a bunch of bands i mean this this movie is infamous for that books music movies, culture in general. And it's interesting because it's like, it is cringy to hear, but teenagers do talk like that. It's chicken and the egg because you know there's people watching and listening to this that are like literally writing down every piece of media mentioned and then wanting to go make it their whole personality after the fact. You know what I mean? Yeah. But but as as far as the book is concerned, that is... A real thing. And just also the amount of mix making that happens. Mm-hmm. Well, hey. Extreme. You know about that. Yeah, but I wasn't doing it the way that they did it. You did it with CDs. Like, it's it's just like yeah, your it's version. Different. It's less effort. It's less high effort. No, yeah. I shouldn't talk shit like that because I know there's like a CD that Adam gave me, like my good friend Adam gave me, that was like so immaculate because we were both on like our emo unrequited love shit in high school. I guess the thing, the the unfortunate thing for me that wins me over or like makes me buy into the movie is Ezra Miller. They come off so authentically in this movie. And it's one of the most, I think, like natural fit performances that I've seen. 
uh, like ever, like ever. Yeah, it's yeah. They're beyond the cringe, beyond the things that the character says. That is like, okay, all right, whatever. We're moving past it. Just like <laughs> yeah. as a presence and knowing, understanding the environment that they're in. It's like, yeah, like this person is very real to me. He his lines are so funny. Yeah, like I wrote some down. Like when um when Charlie when Charlie is his secret Santa and he's like, this gift is so gay. There's only one person it can be from. Um, and also from that same scene when he's like, or he Patrick is he delve into our facilities, emerge a star. Yeah. Like <laughs> like Patrick is just really funny. Yeah. It's like a super lovable character, really well done, really uniquely done too, because he isn't like a Kurt from Glee right. or like a like a cliche at all. It's like a super original interpretation of a character that could have been really like stereotypical. Um yeah, or like half-assed, or like, you know. Yeah. He, he they were just the perfect casting. Yeah. Oh, what role. do you think about the relationship between Sam and Patrick though because they sometimes they obviously I know they're not like they're not like Cher and Paul Rudd in Clueless because like they're not into each other but like sometimes and they're best friends and you see that but sometimes it's like uh no it's weird they behave in ways that step siblings just wouldn't I agree Neither. Okay, we don't have step siblings, so like we can't really say firsthand. But no, I'm also like, are we not going to get any backstory on why right. they're so close? Yeah, like, because usually, also just the initial react. I mean, st- stereotypically, the the reaction of getting like if you got a new step sibling in high school, like you wouldn't immediately be best friends. I mean, it's possible, but like it, d- the yeah. situation just seems unlikely. I do not believe for a second that Emma Watson would be like in that group on. Yeah. Like it just doesn't make any sense. Why does Sam do what she does? Why does she act the way she does towards Charlie? Why does she say you look like a sexy English schoolboy? And that he looks innocent and shit. Does she just do that because he's so non-threatening? I don't know, being like, I'm going to kiss you because the per... I, it feels like she's almost kind of manipulating him. Yeah. But like... It does. and But it's like, it's not really asking you to look at it with that level of nuance. It's just asking you to look at it like, that's nice of her because he has a crush on her. I don't know. Right. Well, I actually wrote down that it's a really, really similar dynamic to 500 Days, but without the hateful angle. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And like the romance, his romanticization of her seeing her, you know, hearing and seeing. And it actually is very similar because you know how like he oversteps. Yeah. Like he, he sees her issues and he oversteps and is like, why do you like, why are you with a guy that doesn't treat you right? Like he's judging her really hard, but he also is in love with her. And it's like, yeah. And, and there's the kind of comparison of what's going on with his sister and her relationship and how he he feels like kind of like not to use emasculated but kind of 
in terms of help being able to help his sister because she's older and she's like, leave me alone. I can handle this. And so Sam is like his route to kind of get out that energy of like wanting to protect her. But then you also have the added layer of him being uh, sexually assaulted. Yeah. So there's a lot of people with issues in that regard. Yeah. It's like, it's like a really dense herd of people with like sexual abuse in their background. Yeah. Which isn't really all that unlikely because I feel like cycles of trauma work that way. Like it's, it's all a chain reaction. I think also going back to the romanticizing thing, this movie does a really good job. Well, it's a combination of the movie doing a good job and the casting doing what it does of making us see her in the same way that Charlie does Mm -hmm. as like this flawless person or like even she's not flawless, but basically like she's so pretty that it doesn't matter. And a lot of that is just her being herself. Like, or it's just Emma Watson being there Mm -hmm. and being Emma Watson. And what's wild about that is that people like that exist. (laughs) It's like, yeah, those people where they're so like their presence, they're so pretty and their presence is so like, enigmatic that like Mm -hmm. or like draws you in that they it actually affects their life trajectory like it oh totally it actually well it does I mean it's just it's just textbook pretty privilege yeah that can contribute to a lack of self-awareness and I think it can also contribute to a lack of self-reflection and kind of like yeah like deeper like digging deeper about yourself I don't know. Yeah. Well, that's also, you could apply all of that to just like white people. Mm-hmm. Like it's the same thing. There's like tiers yeah, of it. So, it's like, there's like gonna, bigger groups and then you can like keep narrowing yeah. it down. It's like anyone with privilege. It's like men, white people, straight people, able-bodied people. Yeah. Like there's a million different ways to do it. But I do think that it also applies to like really thin, beautiful people too. It definitely does hot people effect. Another thing that I really don't like is in the beginning where I was cringing the whole time when he's like, I used to have friends, but she doesn't like to say hi to me anymore. I'm like, what is that line? No, I hate that line. I hate that line. It's so infantilizing and stupid. I like hate how that feels. The narration is a framing device technically because he's writing a letter to his dead friend, kind of, sort of. They never reveal who the friend is even in the book. No, and let me just say something. Let me just get this out in the open. I never realized how closely of a copy Dear Evan Hansen is to this book. I actually wrote that down. It is actually alarming to the point where I can't even ignore it. Like, I don't know how I never put that together and... I think both of those things, Dear Evan Hansen and this movie, have a similar kind of perception in the public from people that don't know what they're about. They think that it, like with Dear Evan Hansen, it's always like, oh yeah, isn't that like a gay kid being bullied for like having his wrist broken or something? (laughs) (laughs) And then you go see it. Like literally that's what I thought. And then I saw it and I was like, what? (laughs) Wait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was like, oh, this is about um, a troubled kid who is straight 
and then has a basically lies about being close friends with a kid who committed suicide and then writing fake letters and shit and then having a crush on his sister. I feel strongly that Perks of Being a Wallflower is the good version of Dear Evan Hansen. There's this song. Do you listen to Muna? Yeah. There's this song on the new album called Kind of Girl that you can sing the entire chorus of You Will Be Found over it and it works perfectly. (laughs) And I hated myself for noticing it. I could get up tomorrow Talk to myself real gentle Work in the Obviously, obviously, Charlie has been through real trauma. Yeah. I'm not trying to say that he hasn't. However, the amount of pity he gets and the amount of pity he feels for himself is extremely vintage feeling already. Like, you just wouldn't have a movie like this now. Oh, yeah, you wouldn't. And if there was, it would almost be brave. (laughs) Right. Exactly. I'd but be like, honestly, have have such a viewpoint. Yeah, because the that heightened level of self-pity is extremely real. People totally yeah. feel that way about themselves all the time. Yeah. More than most people would like to admit. So I can kind of appreciate it for that. But from an optics standpoint, yeah, it would be hard. It would be a lot harder to justify releasing this into the world. You know yeah. what it reminds me of? I just rewatched <laughs> I just rewatched White Lotus because uh-huh. I love it. It's so good and it's so well written and yeah. that's what Mike White does. He's so good at like bringing um current current sounding dialogue using current terms and but he writes it in a way that doesn't feel cheap. It doesn't feel cheapened. There's this part where Connie Britton, the rich white mom, is talking to the girls, Sydney Sweeney and Paula, about how it is difficult to be, like, we have to be the ones to empathize with the son because the world doesn't empathize with him right now. Like, he's a straight white boy. Like, nobody's going to hire him. Like, the world hates him right now. So like, we might as well be the ones to empathize with him. Um, aside from like identity politics and stuff. And, and then Paula sitting there who is not white and she's like internally exploding, but she doesn't know how to like get out of the situation. And Sydney is like trying to be like an ally for her friend, but she also is a rich white girl and she like can't Mm -hmm. fully like overwrite that. I just, I think it's really well written, but it reminds me of like the boldness of Charlie's Uh self-pity. Like, yeah, definitely. Well, and also like the way that they, they like take him in for no reason. And it's almost like, do they take him in because they think he's hot? Because I don't think so. No, I mean, I don't literally think so, but, like, why are so many of them throwing themselves at him? Yeah, that part always seemed a little unlikely. (laughs) Yeah, I just was a little confused by that. 
Um, his, what do you think of like the section of the movie where he's with Mae Whitman's character? Oh, I actually wrote down, I hate the Mary Elizabeth section. Yeah. Which I was looking, I wrote down, I hate the M.E. section. And I was like, what does that mean? But now that you are saying it, yeah. yeah. Hated that section because, mostly because it's all too real. <laughs> it's really real. <laughs> like, it is excruciatingly real. Everything about it, it's like... It's like to, uh, to like let's if we're gonna go real gender binary on this, it's like that is every girl's worst nightmare to be that way, to be perceived that way, and then to be fucked over that way. Yeah. Like especially like for me, if you because I, I have an intense personality, like I'm not Emma Opinions. Watson by any means, <laughs> like very opinionated, like not a bully though in my opinion, but it's like damn, like that. It's close to home, whether or not it has happened to me or not. Um, what did you think about it? Oh, just like there's absolutely no redemption for Mary Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> well, her redemption is kind of that she gets that other boyfriend. And oh, then yeah, she that's gets true. To be like, Actually, there kind of is redemption for her. There is. There's redemption. Um, yeah. yeah, at least there's that. And they kind of show how... Um, they show that what he did was wrong and he knows it was wrong. All the friends agree that it was wrong, but it is a little, it's a little too real. It is. The way that he is so isolated and the way that they kind of treat him. Yeah. Like the way that Emma Watson is like, Charlie. Like he's I'm not a this. baby. They infantilize they him, him like he's a baby. so hard. And and they, yeah. they treat him that way before they even know what his baggage is. Right. Yeah. I think, okay, if he's not autistic coded, I feel like they treat him like... He's, he's trauma coded he's in, at least. Like yeah, if you yeah, knew yeah, yeah. that somebody's best friend, like if you knew that somebody had somebody close to them like commit suicide or something along those lines, yeah. you might have that urge to infantilize but they don't even know that when they meet him i don't know it's like they support him but they only support him through including him in yeah. shit it's like mostly they just drag him around and use him as a an entertainment like, method yeah or like someone that they can channel their angst through or like use as a human sounding board like yeah which is kind of real. I mean, it is definitely true that if you are a freshman that gets swept up into a senior friend group, like Godspeed, and yeah. <laughs> you probably will be babied a lot and you will be infantilized to some but degree. Like, why are you being made someone's boyfriend and then also being like a weird secret love interest of someone else? Yeah. It's kind of strange, <laughs> but... Yeah. I know like, it's happened. I know that situation has happened before. Totally. I feel like we've even seen it happen, probably. It is so, so deeply seen through Charlie's perspective that it's like everyone is an angel except for like Brad. Even though Brad kind of gets the angel edit too, despite it all. Yeah, he does. Like the only, and even Aunt Helen gets the angel edit despite it all. It's like Ponytail Derek, who's the only actual bad yeah. person. And obviously the guys that are like punching the shit out of Patrick, which that scene 
that scene scared so me i was like um why is this so brutal like it's because it's, it's the relationship between Brad and Patrick is so believable and so sad. And then when they are beating the shit out of him, it's like, that's Patrick. Yeah. Like, that's your boy. Yeah. It's intense. It was stressful to watch that part. Ezra Miller absolutely goes off as Frankenfurter. Like, it's so good. Oh, oh my God. Wait, we should talk about our Rocky Horror story then. Okay, so <laughs> this movie introduced... A whole generation to Rocky Horror Picture Show, for sure. And for that, I cannot commend the movie enough. Especially because so many of the people that saw it were probably baby gays or like weird art kids. And Rocky Horror is just the perfect thing to uh, cater to that audience. And for those who don't know, because I feel like there's some people that might not know, so I'm just going to throw it out there. Um, Rocky Horror Picture Show is this camp classic from the 70s, I think. And it's like this really shitty, low budget movie musical that's like vaguely horror themed. And it stars Tim Curry and Susan Sarandon and good old Barry Bostwick, if that means anything to you. It has become this tradition that at a lot of theaters, they do midnight screenings of Rocky Horror Picture Show. And there will be a recurring cast of weirdos, essentially, who dress up like the characters in the movie and reenact the entire movie as it's going. There's a lot of audience interaction that goes on. It's just like a kind of inexplicable cultural phenomenon on and it is featured in this movie to which I ask how did they get Emma Watson to do all that vaguely sexy stuff but I guess she was done with Harry Potter so maybe she was yeah. like now it was my so time. vaguely too like it's not even like that real no it's not that real but still anyway so currently down the street from me there is like an artsy movie theater like a small movie theater that Audrey and I went to the summer after my senior year of college with a bunch of my friends to go see Rocky Horror Picture Show. One of the best part, best and worst parts of going to Rocky Horror is that it is, it is your excuse to dress like a slut. Like Halloween. Yeah. But maybe even more. Because everyone in Rocky Horror is like a, like a slutty person. It's kind of hard to explain. Audrey, how would you recount the evening. <laughs> Basically, I was so I for me it was after sophomore year of high school and I hadn't like ever drank or partied in high school in any way, like at all. And so to me, going to Rocky Horror was like really kind of scary. It honestly <laughs> was. Hannah had a group of friends going, and I remember that. I'm pretty sure mom told you to invite me. I don't think you were anti, but I think she did prompt it. I am pretty sure. Probably. Yeah, because I remember kind of like being in the kitchen and then like it being talked about and then me like trying to figure out what I would wear and stuff. And I remember <laughs> that like I was in my room, but I could hear your friends in your room as you were like getting ready in there. So uh -huh. I kind of remember that and there's just being like nervous, even though I was friends with all the people that were going like, it's not like yeah. that wasn't weird or anything. Point is we go, it's fine. It happens. I definitely fell out of place and like, I did not know what was going on. And the thing with Rocky Horror is that if it's your first time when you go, you're supposed to draw a V on yourself for like Rocky Horror Virgin, basically with like red lipstick. And then at the beginning of the 
film, you're supposed to go up to the front and then basically, I don't know if this is what they do everywhere. I think it is, Mm -hmm. but I don't know. They ask all the like Rocky Horror virgins to do their best like orgasm sound into a microphone. (laughs) Yeah. And like, to me, at that age, (laughs) there's like 40 (laughs) levels as to why that is something I could not and would not do. So luckily, you know, you, they're not going to force you to go up there. So like, I, I yeah. like we drew the V's, but we didn't go up there. You just like stay in your seat. Yeah. I mean, we were literally minors. Like half yeah. of us were minors. Still. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> I remember that being alarming. <laughs> I was like, um, no. Afterwards, we went to Denny's with people. It was IHOP. Uh, it IHOP. Was IHOP. IHOP. Yeah. And we ended up because the movie starts at midnight. So you're not going to. Yeah you're not going to get out for like at least an hour and 45. So then you're looking at like almost 2 a.m. So if you're going to do anything after you, it's already pushed off and to like 4 a.m. And basically yeah, our parents were asleep because they fall asleep really early. And yeah, I kind of don't remember how it happened, honestly. No, I think, I think I can remember. So okay. In my mind, I was like, if they've let us out of the house this late, it's anyone's game. And the truth is we weren't even doing anything wrong. Like there was no drinking. There was no weed. Like it was genuinely just like, we are going to go do this and then we're going to get food after. But I didn't ask about getting the food. And the issue was that you were there. If it had just been me. Really? I wouldn't have. That was the biggest part of why I got in trouble was because you were there. That's funny. I wouldn't expect that. that's what I recall. I'm sure that if mom is listening to this, she would have a third perspective on this if she remembers. But I can also very clearly imagine her being like, I don't remember what happened. All I know is we got home really late and they tried to ground me. But then they were like, that doesn't make any sense because you're too old to be grounded, really. So just don't do that again. And I was like, yeah. Also, it's not like they would have been pleased if we had like rang the phone at 2 a.m. just to be like, I'm getting a pancake, like. Okay. Yeah. Well, and I think part of it too is like to be, to, to clarify, this was a theater that was 30 minutes away yeah. from our house. And I think also it's like going to an IHOP at it's never a good two in the morning <laughs> as a bunch of like 17 year olds, 18 year olds, and then like a 15 year old in slutty outfits. Yeah. <laughs> was bold, was bold and brash, but we had each other. There were like six people. I thought I was a baddie. Like I was like, you this were a is baddie. crazy. We looked, I was like. <laughs> You're like, last night was a movie. <laughs> yeah, no, actually. Like that was probably the first night where I was like, last night was a movie. <laughs> anyway, so that probably wouldn't have happened if we hadn't seen Perks of being a wallflower, at least For me, it probably wouldn't have happened. No, and I proceeded to take my friends to Rocky Horror, like when I got older into high school and none of them had been before. And so I felt like I was superior now because I know about this and like, I know what to expect and none of you know what to expect. (laughs) I want to go again. I haven't been in such a long time. Yeah, I've never been um, to a New York Rocky, which seems wrong. That does seem kind of wrong. But I also feel like New York Rockies and like suburban Rockies are very different. Yeah. Because in the suburbs, it's like the true freaks come out at night. You know what I mean? Yeah. Nobody's like, like trying to be cool. Like, 
No. It's like you're going to cosplay with your tits out. <laughs> and that's it. Period. Joan Cusack. I wrote down what a snap from trauma. <laughs> like... If Joan Cusack was my doctor, I'd be like, I'm healed. No, you'd be like, I can't get better. <laughs> yeah. You'd be around her more. Yeah, I'd be like, I'm sick. <laughs> I wrote down that Sam's bedroom is the Tumblr blueprint because it really is. In dated slash problematic, I wrote, this bitch, <laughs> this bitch got to stop bringing up his aunt. <laughs> <laughs> He's very like, you know, when Katya just says weird things. Yeah. Like, he's very like, my Aunt Helen used to do yeah. this. Yeah. Like, like, literally like at every turn, he's like, yeah, my aunt was my favorite person. It's like, without knowing the trauma and, and like what's going on with him, you're just like, can Unprovoked you mention of Aunt Helen. Stop bringing up your aunt. It's weird. Yeah, it is weird. It's a red flag. What did you think of the scene where Emma was like, I don't want to be somebody's crush. I want them to see the real me. You can't just put okay. everyone else's lives ahead of your your own and whatever, say it's love. Like to me, for me, that does not play. This is kind of like the hot people effect that I'm talking about. Right. Anybody yeah. who's like, I don't want to be somebody's crush. It's like, first of all, why not? What's wrong with like... <laughs> Why not? Like, if you have people in yeah. life that are actively having a crush on you, shouldn't you just feel the power of that and just, like, live? Right. Like, what's wrong? Right. What's wrong with you <laughs> that you're mad yeah. that somebody has a crush on you? I get it from the perspective of, you know, we this year could have played out differently, I guess. Like, if, if she did want to... But here's the thing. If she wanted to get... If she wanted to, like, date him for real, she could have said that. But she yep. goes, I didn't think, he goes, I didn't think that's what you wanted. And that's what makes her mad. She's like, well, I'm like, okay, that's a nice thing to say. Like, he's not being rude. Also, she had another boyfriend the whole time. Yeah. Hello. So, like, I think the demands are really unrealistic. I think also that scene is just the very, very clear, like, here we are saying the things like, let us put out the quotable part. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't know. And I don't even think that like, I do think the, the idea of you can't put everyone else's lives ahead of your own and call that love. Like, I do think that that, that is real. Makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And like, that is applicable to a lot of like emo ass people. That we know. Yeah. And that, that everyone knows. But I think the way that it's like, just jammed in there is a little and it's only related to his crush on her like he's she's only talking about it because of that aspect right right even though it does secretly apply to all of his relationships like with Patrick and especially with Mary Elizabeth from her perspective she's only saying that because she like is being weirdly possessive over I don't know I think she's kind of oddly possessive with him but at the same time you know like when he dates Mary Elizabeth and when he kind of does get out of his shell a little bit and he does do some things he might not have done before you can see it on her face that she's not happy about it 
like she's not. And she tries to cover it as I'm concerned about you. Like, are you okay with this? Like being high or whatever? Are you okay with being drunk? But really it's because she's feeling jealous. I think. Yeah. The best part of the movie, in my opinion, is the realization montage That is some filmmaking, if Mm -hmm. I do say so myself. The David Bowie song for the tunnel song is a good choice. Um, It's a really big part of the book. And kind of the whole thing is that it's very much not disclosed what it is. And to me, I wish it was an original song Mm -hmm. and I wish it was instrumental personally. Yeah. And I wonder if they experimented with that. Because again, it circles back to the how the fuck did you not know a David Bowie song yeah. Moment. So ultimately, like, I, I don't like the 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 narration at the end when he's like, all of these things will become stories and the pictures will fade and blah, blah, yeah. blah. Like, I think that voiceover is kind of cringy. What do you think of, like, the movie's message overall about, like, romanticizing being a teenager? I think the movie definitely feeds a part of everybody's melodramatic teen spirit and it is yeah. nice to I definitely remember as a teenager I would think sort of similar things like this is temporary type of thing where you're like yeah. I should try to take this in type of thing and I know at least nowadays it feels like or pre-covid nowadays I remember always hearing like <laughs> don't blink quote yeah um like don't blink it's gonna be over and you're gonna miss it and like blah 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 you're gonna miss high school like they're great years or whatever and nobody wants to think that I really really need adults to stop saying that because nobody wants to think that yeah and mm, I don't know I definitely can access nostalgia for high school because I generally had a good experience yeah but yeah, I don't know. What do you do? You have an answer to that? There's something. I feel like watching it at almost 27 was a really different experience than when I watched it in high school. I feel like when I watched it in high school, I was like, "This is this wants to manipulate me into romanticizing my current moment," but really, I I don't buy it all the way because this feels really I mean, contrived. And you can't because you're living it. It's like you can, but it's just not. As it's like, easy, well, I guess. That, it, that's like choosing to be partially blind to the truth. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah, but people do that all the time, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Last night was a movie. It's like the same thing as that. In terms of like representation of like trauma, especially Charlie's trauma, it's really strong. So I don't want to like not mention that. Mm-hmm. I think that that is really well done. As long as it isn't romanticizing the trauma And how, like, having the trauma makes you a more complex and interesting person. Yeah. And, like, that overcoming huge personal trauma is, like, the only way to have, like, a fully fleshed out, like, high school experience. Like, when I started the movie, I was like, this is so cringy. I literally don't know if I'm going to be able to get through this. But then by the end, I was like... I see what this brings to the genre. I can appreciate it. It has its flaws, but this is just not for me specifically. But I can see who it's for and I am happy for them. I'm sure there's some boys out there who... Oh, yeah. Josh said that he used to, that this was like one of the things for him. Yeah. 
Can I can I try to drag him out here to say something really fast? I have roped in the one boy I have almost 24-7 access to. <laughs> Hello. Which is Josh. It's me. It's him. Josh, when I told you that we were going to cover this movie, you were like, oh, yeah, I remember the first time I saw that one. So would you care to uh, elaborate? On your experience? So I saw this movie for the first time at the end of my freshman year of college. I like didn't even like we were people were like, oh, we're going to watch this. And I was like, I don't know what that is. So anyway, I definitely watched it and definitely was like, oh, my God, like that's me or whatever. You know, like this, you know, like it's it makes you feel like something important is supposed to happen in your life or some shit like that. Mm -hmm. And then I proceeded to have a summer where that was just my whole motto is that I like needed to have some kind of existential crisis. And I I succeeded at that for sure. And I think I think that Perks of Being a Wallflower was definitely not like in my mind the whole time, but I think it set the tone for that to uh, the tone. (laughs) I think it set the tone for that whole uh, experience of like this weird coming of age, but like existential crisis, like a coming of age, but you're sad about it. But like, I guess that's what it is to come of age. Good answer. And thank you, Josh, for uh, representing for for the boys. The boys. <laughs> this movie is literally just like white guy receives blessings for no reason. The movie like he yeah. doesn't deserve any of that shit. In my opinion, it just kind of seems like he shows up and they're like, hey, man, you're cool. And he's like, ah, whatever. And they're like, yeah, man, awesome. And he's like, cool. Like, it just seems really random. So I do feel like that is this movie slash book is designed for the the archetype that is my my peer group. OK, so is it worth watching? Yeah, I think so. There's good filmmaking. There's like some nice cuts. I There was some editing things I liked. Uh, yeah, I think it's worth watching. I agree. And I think it's a really good time capsule of 2012. Also, even though it's set in 1991, there's just like a thing about it that is very 2012 also. And I do think it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just mostly because of Ezra Miller, though. <laughs> also, this is coming from two people with relatively small amounts of trauma. So just yeah. keep that in mind, too. I know it means a lot to a lot of people and I'm happy for them and I'm not trying to shit on them for liking it. Neither. I mean, it, it to me, it's kind of akin to like, okay, it's not, it's better than this, but like, it's sort of akin to the fault in our stars in, in, uh, yeah. the whole, it means a lot to certain people thing. And like, not everybody gets that. And if that, if yeah. it means a lot to you, that's good. Okay, everyone. Thank you for going on this journey with us. We really... We're on a road here. We will be back next week as always. We have a lot of exciting guests coming up. We've been saying it and you probably are like, you're lying. So, but we're not lying. <laughs> we're not lying. <laughs> um, so normally we'd say like, bye. And we are saying bye, but we are now girls that read our credits every time. <laughs> so I'm not going to hold us to that, but we're going to try it. <laughs> I think we should. I think we should. So listen, it's not just the credits. There's important information. Where can they find us? You can find more from us at evergreenpodcast.com slash sleepover dash cinema and keep up with our latest creative projects at twopinkpictures.com. We're on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube at sleepover cinema and post a full video version that I work very hard on of each episode (laughs) on YouTube and Facebook every Thursday. 
Also, please join our Discord server at the link in the episode description or on evergreenpodcast.com slash sleepovercinema. Also, sorry, I was so congested this whole episode. COVID like really has me going through it. But please join our Discord server. It's so fun. We talk in there every day. It's a great place. Also, you can check out our merch at twopinkpictures.com slash shop. We got t-shirts, sweatshirts, stickers, and much more. And if you like the show, if it brings back memories for you or makes you think differently about movies that you love, share an episode or two with a few friends, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, letting us know what you'd like to see next. Just leave us sweet nothings because it's nice of you to do. Sleepover Cinema is a production of Evergreen Podcasts, produced, edited, and engineered by us, Hannah and Audrey Leach. Sleepover Cinema is mixed by Sean Rule Hoffman with theme music by Josh Perlman Hall. Executive producer is Michael D'Aloya. Bye. Bye. <laughs> we are infinite. <laughs>